This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. Today, we'll be looking back at medical research in 2022. Our editors have picked their favourite topics of the year out of nearly a thousand articles that they've edited or written, from dementia to stem cells to psychedelic drugs. Today, I'm joined by podcast regulars Maria Kahoot. Hi! Yasmin Nicholas Sakai. Hi! As well as Medical News Today's managing editor for the first time, James McIntosh. Welcome to the podcast. Hello! <laughs> Thank you for having me. Okay, let's kick us off with what has taken your fancy, what's made you prick up your ears. You know, you guys, between you, you cover so many different news and research articles. Maria, you want to talk to us about controversies in dementia research. Tell us why. I think this year has been a very tumultuous year for dementia research. And the main reason why is that at some point in July, somebody drew attention to a seminal paper on dementia research, a paper that was published in Nature in 2006. And it's essentially the paper that suggests that a clump of toxic proteins called amyloid beta is at the core of what causes the main symptoms of dementia uh, in its various forms. And since then, researchers have taken that more or less for granted. But this year, somebody has claimed that there are inaccuracies, that some of the imagery in that paper was manipulated to reach that conclusion and support that argument. So while the paper has not yet been retracted, that has caused a lot of doubts and questions among the research community and, of course, you know, the people who are interested in dementia research from a personal perspective. James? Yeah, that's a pretty big thing to have happened. I was wondering if in your work, if you'd noticed anything changing since this has come to light in the ways in which scientists have spoken about dementia research? For sure, for sure. The whole debacle, it started at some point in July. And ever since, first of all, I've noticed a shift in how likely researchers that we get in touch with are to actually comment on different studies. A lot of the time, they don't feel as confident, especially if those studies are based on this seminal theory about the amyloid beta clumps in the brain. And I think they feel more confident criticizing that sort of research and saying, well, maybe this is not quite the right direction for us to look in when we think about new treatments and when we think about causes. So that's one thing that I've noticed for sure. It's been very interesting. Do you know you mentioned treatments there? I was wondering, what does this tell us about treatments? Because most of them have been targeted at the amyloid clusters, haven't they? That's right. Opinions are kind of divided on this as far as I can gather. There are those in the research community who think even if this paper has manipulated some of the data, it may still be that the theory holds and it's okay to continue on this line of research. And then there are others who say, 
well, actually, maybe this is an opportunity for us to look at some other causes and some other mechanisms. So there's another protein called tau that can also form clumps, sticky clumps in the brain that has also been linked to different forms of dementia. And researchers are saying now, maybe we should also look at tau, maybe we should also look at this other pathology in conjunction with better amyloid and see if we can come up with better treatments. Yes. So Maria, um, we've seen that there's a new treatment being tested for Alzheimer's and dementia, and it's a monoclonal antibody treatment. Could you kind of further elaborate on that? That is correct. This is a drug called lecanemab. So monoclonal antibodies, essentially what they do is they attack specific antigens in the body. And so in the case of lecanemab, what it does is it eventually targets specifically amyloid beta and specifically targets those toxic clumps that are supposed to be forming in the brain of people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. And it's been a very promising drug. Its developers have said that in clinical trials, it has met all primary endpoints, which means that it's mostly safe and that the benefits outweigh the risks, which means that it's effective. So apparently it does slow down the progression of Alzheimer's to an extent by stopping amyloid beta from over-accumulating. Can I ask a question about that? Because you can have lots of amyloid and be absolutely fine and not notice it. That's right. So when you mentioned the endpoint of the trial drug, some of these trials have actually looked at reduction in amount of amyloid. Well, if that's not the thing that's causing the functional problem, isn't that one of the wrong endpoints? Is that one of the problems we've got with the research? Yeah, so a very good point, Hilary. So back in June, when we did our podcast on dementia research, we spoke to Dr. Kamar Amin Ali, and she made a point of saying precisely what you mentioned, that there are lots of people who, as they get older, they experience an accumulation of beta amyloid in the brain, and that's normal. It happens. It doesn't mean that they will develop dementia. But these clumps are also found in the brains of people with dementia. We'd expect to see amyloid in the brain as you get older. So if you were to do a test to look for amyloid in CSF, in cerebral spinal fluid, for example, it's on its own would not be diagnostic of Alzheimer's disease. And also amyloid and tau as pathological hallmarks, they're also associated with other brain diseases that lead to dementia, like chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So it's just the pattern and the distribution of these pathologies that determine what the brain disease is. Um, so what's really happening there? I think we don't really have an answer to that question yet. And yes, that is one of the questions that researchers have had regarding lecanemab. And indeed, so we have a feature about this drug that we recently published. And one of the researchers that our writer interviewed was saying precisely that, that this seems to be a promising drug, but what might be even better in the future and even more effective would be having a drug that targets more pathologies, not just the beta amyloid. So that has been one of the issues that people have pointed out. Is it really as promising as they make it out to be? 
Another concern that researchers have had with lecanemab is that there are reports that two of the participants on the clinical trial sadly passed away, and that was because of brain hemorrhage, so bleeding in the brain after taking lecanemab. So the question was, how safe is it really? But one of the researchers that we interviewed for our recent feature actually said, well, this is a risk, this is something that is bound to happen sometimes. And they explain that this is because amyloid is also found in the blood vessels that go through the brain. So if you attack it in the brain, you might also remove it from the blood vessels, which might cause bleeding. Uh, And they were saying once it eventually receives approval, if it does, this is something that they need to be aware of. Gosh, it sounds like we need some more avenues for research. Has anyone been reading anything about this? Yeah, like stem cell could be a hopeful avenue for the future to possibly cure uh, dementia. And I read that scientists had taken skin cells from people with dementia and they were reprogramming them into stem cells and then triggering them to become brain cells. So I thought that prospect sounded very promising. So, James, you've been following stem cell research closely this year. What is a stem cell and why do you think it's so exciting? So stem cells are immature cells that have yet to have a defined specific role within the body. And what's exciting is that they have the potential to develop into any kind of cell with a specific function, which is a process called differentiation. And What makes that exciting for me is that we can take stem cells and differentiate them into specific things that can have very specific applications potentially for either treating certain conditions or using them within research to find new treatments for for conditions. So they're really versatile. And I think it's this versatility that has caught my interest this year, particularly with a couple of different bits of research that have been coming up over the last 12 months. What sort of things? Well, a couple that have really caught my eye. Firstly, there was a bit of research in rats earlier this year where scientists were using stem cells to develop certain neurons in the brains of rats exhibiting symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And that treatment was working quite nicely and showing a lot of potential for human trials further down the line. Um, The stories that really caught my eye, though, were a couple of cases where stem cell transplants had been used in patients undergoing treatment for forms of leukemia, but also who had HIV. And following the stem cell transplants, they then went on to be in complete remission from HIV and not requiring to have any of the medication that they'd up until that point been needing to receive. That's so interesting and so fascinating. Yes. You've been looking into this as well. Yeah, it's um, very promising for a lot of diseases, whether it's for cancer treatment, because uh, scientists can use stem cells to test new cures and treatments on these cells without actually having to need humans. But it's also promising for diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, where you have tissue degeneration and they could possibly use stem cells to reconstruct and create new ligaments, tendons and cartilage. So it's hopeful for people with chronic conditions as well. I don't know which side of this research is more interesting, but I was curious because I know that James has actually participated in the stem cell research. Uh, I just wanted to hear what he felt when he was participating in this research. Was it exciting? Yeah, just kind of tell me about your experience. 
Yes, I, I have had a bit of a vested interest in getting into stem cells this year. I was fortunate enough to be asked to donate stem cells for some research as part of a, a charity, which is looking to to take some stem cells to use within research to hopefully develop a new treatment for a, eventually a, a rare condition that affects how body processes sugar. But yeah, how it felt, it felt, it felt really good. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I've kind of built my myself up to be quite apprehensive about it because you hear all these stories about all oh, stem cell donation is a very arduous and painful procedure when in fact it was anything but really. I sort of went into the hospital for the day and was strapped up to a machine that took blood out of one arm, put it through a, a centrifuge to extract the stem cells and then put the blood back into my other arm. And I was just kind of hooked up like that for the best part of the day. It was a little bit achy, but the, the this is very cheesy, but the, the achiness was nothing in comparison with the, the warm glow of, of satisfaction, knowing that I'd, I'd sort of helped contribute to research and hopefully some treatment for other people further down the road. We started this year with a podcast about uh, blood donation and um, it inspired me to go back and give blood and I know that glow. It is amazing. Maria, you revealed that you actually pass out when you see blood and you still give. <laughs> for me, it's more the needle, I think, going in. Like if I'm going for a vaccine or something like that. And it seems to be an anxiety-related response and it happens to a lot of people. But I think if you can get into a mind space where you're more in the moment and you think about the positives rather than anticipating the fear, that really helps. Uh, it also really helps having good, good people, you know, nurses around you, guiding you through the process. How is it for you, James? What was the experience of actually being there? Did you get any preparation beforehand or what happened actually? Yeah, similar to your experience with having good staff on hand, I, the whole process was was just a very lovely and warm experience from all of the preparatory stuff, like going into the hospital to have a pre-procedure checkup. And that involved going to lots of different departments as well to have you know, tests like ECGs, urine tests and just a general physical with a nurse as well and then on the day itself uh, I was very well looked after by the nursing staff at the hospital they were very very friendly very open to sort of catering to any needs that I might have had throughout the day keeping me well supplied with water and other snacks and yeah just it was just very friendly it, it it didn't feel as though I'd gone into this strange alien environment, which which it could have felt like because there was this kind of humming machine that I was strapped into for the whole time. But it felt more like I was going around to a friend, maybe not a friend's house, that might be a bit, a bit much, but yeah, it definitely had that sort of warmth to it, which I was very grateful for. And it did make the whole thing smoother. So it could, could sound like myself and Maria and James were possibly virtue signaling a bit here but we are just trying to share our joy uh, yes you've been quite quiet yes it, it's because I can't uh, become uh, like you and I can't donate blood or organs because of the medication I take for my chronic condition because I take disease modifying anti-rheumatic drugs and biologics which I inject I'm not allowed to donate blood or organs unfortunately so I can't participate in these beautiful activities. 
You know, and I think that's a really important point is that for all of us, it's a personal decision and a personal choice. And for you, you don't have that choice. So we obviously have to be quite wary about when we talk about these things that not everyone is able to. Yeah. How do you feel when you hear us talking about it? Well, I feel I sort of I feel a bit left out and I'm a bit like, oh, I wish I could do that because apart from that, I'm quite a healthy human being and I, I exercise and I eat well and whatever. So I, I would be the perfect candidate if I wasn't taking these drugs. So it kind of feels like, ah, but then it gives me hope because a lot of other people uh, are doing what I can't do. So like if I ever needed it, I know that I'd be able to go to many people around me that would be willing to do that. And for many, I think that feeling of altruism is so important for their mental health. But let's move on to talk about a different emerging area of research to treat mental health conditions. Yaz, you spent a fair bit of time this year thinking about studies using psychedelic drugs. Now, psychedelics are most famous for being used recreationally and illegally, but now they're being tested to treat mental health conditions. Ah, yes, yes. So this is kind of a very unorthodox approach to the current gold standard treatment in anxiety and depression, because up until now, basically all treatment has been based on either psychotherapy or medication. And the medications have been SSRIs and SNRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So how they worked, how the old school drugs used to work, was by readjusting, balancing levels of neurotransmitters in the brain. So these are little chemicals in the brain. And when some levels are off, of course, you can have symptoms of anxiety or depression. But of course, we see a lot of people with treatment resistant anxiety and depression. So this kind of led scientists to think, what are we missing here? What else is going on in the brain that we could kind of tap into to kind of change things? And there have been trials with psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin, which is the psychoactive compound in magic mushrooms. And what scientists saw was that these drugs, they increased the brain's neuroplasticity, so its ability to change and morph into something bigger. And they've discovered these little networks, like the brain has a fear network, for example, and psychedelics can actually kind of inhibit or override these architectures. And combined with psychotherapy, can remodel the brain. They work really fast, don't they, as well? Compared to traditional treatments, can take about two weeks for stable blood levels to be reached. Oh, yes, exactly. Like, I think there was a recent piece of research and they showed that ketamine ket, it showed effect um, in as little as four hours. So that was very promising, of course. But of course, these aren't self-medicated levels. These are under clinical trials, under supervision with the presence of um, professionals. Yeah, Maria. Speaking of ketamine, there was actually a recent study, I think it was from October, uh, it came from Sorbonne in France, and they were looking actually at how ketamine works in the brain, specifically in the brain of people with severe depression, with treatment-resistant depression, and what they found was that what it actually does is it changes people's negative beliefs about themselves. So they no longer feel, you know, bad about themselves. They don't have those negative self-reflections while they're on ketamine. 
But yeah, I guess the question remains, how do we make sure that this remains a safe treatment and that people don't misuse it? Because I suppose if it gives you such a great state of well-being, there might be that sense of, oh, why don't I take this more so that it improves my relationship with the world on a day-to-day basis? Ah, uh, Yes, I, I remember this study. And I think that was the participants had received ketamine through infusion. So it wasn't a classic kind of consumption. There's many questions. How long do these effects remain? Are repeated treatments necessary? Scientists still don't quite know the effects of psychedelics and drugs like ketamine, how these can affect people. And of course, it's different for everybody. It depends on the patient's personality, their circumstances, their health conditions. That's why an individualized approach is needed. And of course, doing these under clinical trials is totally different than kind of trying to self-medicate. And you need different tools for different needs. So researchers still are working on that and trying to figure out the ins and outs of these and to see who will benefit the most from such therapies. When we did our podcast on this with you, Yaz, and Olivia, I remember Olivia describing when she'd actually taken some magic mushrooms, what incredibly positive sense of well-being she had. With the psychedelic side of things, I do agree that that needs to be explored more because I tried mushrooms once and I thought I was fixed for like a month. The whole month I was like, I love life. I thought everything was beautiful. I didn't understand why I was depressed or anxious. And then I've never done it since and everything kind of went down again. So I don't know. It's a, I wish there was more research on things like that. And kind of to answer your question, Maria, I got the sense that it took her to a place of peacefulness and calmness, which wouldn't be a place of need to keep stimulating in the way that you might with something like cocaine, where you're looking for a hit or or that sort of thing. It's more of a sense of spirituality, generosity, altruism. What do you think about, we don't tend to read medical research about those things as so fundamental to the human condition. James, have you been thinking about this at all? I, I think one thing from accounts that I've read over the usage of of psychedelics is how variable those experiences can be. And so in some occasions, they can be an overwhelmingly positive one. But on the other hand, there's also occasions when they can be the opposite and be a, a fairly miserable experience for all kinds of different reasons and different factors. So I guess when thinking about the usage of of them within treatment, I think that's the one thing that I want to know more about, I guess, is what if there are sort of measures and steps that could be taken to sort of mitigate for that possibility. Yeah, like we said in the previous podcast on this topic, it can be a constructive or destructive experience for the person involved. And I think the effects of psychedelics and drugs like ketamine depends on if you class ketamine as a classic psychedelic or not. Patients describe it as a dreamlike familiarity. Most of them do. And they describe it as a lift of existential burden. But of course, for some people, this can exacerbate current depressive and uh, anxiety symptoms, depending on their experience. But Because scientists don't exactly know how the neuroscience works behind all of this, and they're still discovering these new networks and these like communication between brain cells, 
we still don't know quite how they can choose which patients would suit best suit this treatment. Yeah, at the moment, they're very, very resource intensive because you have someone who's a trained support worker with the person for up to 12 hours at a time, supporting them through the experience. Exactly. And most often there's at least two therapists present. And of course, there's 24 hour surveillance. And in these facilities, of course, they're uh, very expensive. So they're not accessible for everybody at the moment. Maria. So I think it's just important to point out that there's a difference here between taking these various psychedelic substances for personal use, for recreational use, which can be dangerous because you don't know how much you're taking, what that's going to do to you, versus this being done in a very controlled environment, as we've been discussing, and for therapeutic use. And the goal here is to find the best way of dosing these potential treatments in a way that helps people overcome their depression and anxiety symptoms rather than, uh, you know, plunge them into more severe depression and anxiety. Exactly, exactly. Dosing is a great point you made there, Maria, because I think in a lot of these clinical trials, scientists have seen that they actually need much smaller amounts than they initially thought to kind of help treat or improve symptoms. Something I heard recently is that if people aren't taking these drugs within a controlled clinical setting um, and they're buying drugs off the street, it's like drinking water from a puddle. Oh, yes. Yeah. You, know, you don't know what you're getting. Now, let's try and finish this on a high. <laughs> <laughs> let's think about next year's research. What are your hopes for the future for the next year? Maria, I'll start with you. Well, I think because I started talking about the whole Alzheimer's research issue that we saw this year, and a lot of people might think, well, that's a stumbling point, that is an obstacle. But I don't think that's true. I think actually scrutinizing existing studies and scrutinizing existing research a bit more to ensure that it is accurate will do a world of good for dementia research and other types of research for other conditions. And I think my hope for next year and for the years to come for that matter is that researchers will be able to look at different mechanisms and different treatments and actually come up with a better solution for slowing down the progression of different forms of dementia, but also other neurodegenerative conditions that might have similar mechanisms. And I think they will. I think they're already starting to do that. I, I, I see promise there. And James? I guess a little bit selfishly, I'm excited to see what the outcome might be of the study that I've donated some stem cells toward. I, I feel like I have a little bit of a, a vested interest in that now. <laughs> when are they due to report? Um, I don't know, but um, hopefully that's something that won't be too distant in the future. But in sort of having read into stem cells a bit more, there's also going to be a, a clinical trial, hopefully next year, which is looking more in towards Parkinson's disease and mutations in the Parkin gene. And that study is going to be a part of a human trial, which is going to be looking at the, the possibility of, of stem cells within treatment for Parkinson's disease. So yeah, another quite specific thing, I think, but I've got the stem cell bug now. I'm all in, I'm all in on stem cells. Uh, so I'm waiting with bated breath. Fantastic. And Yaz? 
So, of course, I'm curious to see what else will come out in this new age of consciousness medicine and psychedelics and all of that. But I'm actually really interested in new studies coming out with gut health and connecting gut health to many things, connecting gut health to mental health, connecting gut health to autoimmune disorders. And actually, currently, I am testing a service for our readers, which hopefully they will be able to read a review in the next few weeks, months about how kind of nutrition can help with chronic pain. So keep your ears peeled (laughs) for that and hopefully you'll like it. Fantastic. And we did podcast on chronic pain as well, didn't we? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, editors, thank you so much. So many uh, opportunities to plug our amazing podcast and fantastic research and great work, all of you, during uh, 2022. Maria Kahoot, James McIntosh, Yasmin Sakai, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Hilary. Thanks, Hilary. Thank you. (laughs) And of course, thank you for listening. You can read more about our editor's picks on medicalnewstoday.com with links to all of the articles and podcasts that they've been referring to. We'll be doing something a bit different on the podcast from January where we'll take three episodes to delve deep into nutrition and health. Yaz has even been trying out a new diet to help with her chronic pain. More on that soon. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a Hi-Viz Radio production for Medical News Today. Have a wonderful holiday period. Happy, Happy holidays! holidays. <laughs>